To preside at Eucharist is to be plunged into the furnace of God's love. That should be our experience at the Mass, of how loved we are, of how beautiful what God is doing and the love that he has for us is. I can't even handle the news anymore, friends. It's the craziest stuff that they're coming out with. I just read a story today that they discovered a zombie, a real-life zombie, somewhere in the world. And they're doing these experiments, and they figured out the zombie is actually dyslexic. He only eats Brian's. I like that one, actually. I thought that was pretty good. And welcome to episode 117. So good to be back with you, my friends. It is always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for listening, supporting this podcast. If you're a first-time listener or you have not yet done so, please rate and review this podcast. It helps other people find it. And please make sure you don't just leave a rating, but also leave a review. And share this podcast with other people who you think might benefit, especially on social media. You can tag us at Mana Food for Thought on Instagram or at ManaF4T on Twitter. You can find all of that information and loads more goodies on our website, ManaFoodForThought.com. You can email us there, leave comments on our blogs, our podcasts, all these different things. And while you're there, click on the Patreon tab and you can become a financial sponsor for as little as $1 a month and you get perks, y'all. So please... Uh, Go check all that out. But thank you for joining us once again for this episode. Let us dive into joy, junk, and Jesus. So a lot of joy for me in this past week. Uh, just coming off of 4th of July weekend. Uh, it was a very full weekend. Uh, my daughter's best friend, who is uh, my best friend, Jenna, my former co-host, her daughter, uh, had her birthday party. And her and Hannah are only uh, like 12 days apart and <clears throat> so we got to see them and their family and a lot of friends. And so that was just really, really wonderful. And then this was also 4th of July weekend. So it's my father-in-law's birthday and also America's birthday. And so we all got to spend some time together. So um, that was just really wonderful. So we were watching fireworks for the first time with our kids last night and with Jenna and her family and my father-in-law um, just kind of celebrating uh, so that was just really wonderful. The junk is that I'm recording this just the day after 4th of July, so I'm very tired. Um, and um, not really junk. It was just kind of funny, but it was sad. Um, my my son particularly was terrified of the fireworks last night. And I realized in retrospect I should have, like, prepared him, like, showed him a little video of what fireworks were and what they looked like to kind of get him used to it. But instead, we weren't entirely sure of where they were coming from. And then all of a sudden, they just started going off. And he just, like, collapsed, panic, fell into my wife's arms and just was a hysterical mess the entire time. Um, and then he was fine. He recovered really well. And he slept like a baby last night. So he's good. But um, it was just kind of sad that, like... He wasn't as prepared or as, like, uh, excited for them as I hoped he would be. My daughter was a little freaked out initially, but she ended up up liking them. So, yeah, so that was a little bit of junk. Um, but another big piece of junk, I mean, I joked about in my dad joke at the beginning about, you know, the news. But there's just some really tragic things that have been happening over the weekend. You know, the shootings, especially in Chicago and in Copenhagen. And I, I just has been reminding me of the fact that, like, we cannot wait on other people, the government or a corporation, a company, whatever it is, policymakers, whoever, to fix these things. As disciples of Jesus Christ, like we are continuing the mission of Jesus. And it says in the Gospel of Luke, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so I don't know that junk junk in the news media is just reminding and in the world is just reminding me like 
my role is to love others and to reach out to the lost. And only in in loving other people and loving these people who have gone through whatever they've gone through to establish this kind of mental illness or dysphoria that allows them to think that this is a rational and reasonable thing to do to take out their anger is to, you know, commit these acts of violence. Only through love will that will that be fixed. You know, um, say what you want about policy, gun control, you know, this or that. I'm all about preserving human life. I mean, that's uh, Catholic doctrine teaching. So whatever can do that, I'm for it. But in these areas where policy seeks to be the thing that, you know, dominates, people just find other ways, other weapons, you know, stabbing, you know, crimes go up when guns are no longer, you know, um, accessible. So it's not not like one law is going to fix this. It's the law of love of Jesus Christ. That's what he came to do. He didn't go to Caesar. He didn't go to the government and say like, okay, here's what we're going to do to fix everything. He just ministered. So I'm going to get off my soapbox for my junk, but I just think that it's a good reminder that um, we're placed here to be emissaries of his love in wherever he's placed us. And so maybe that reminds you of an old school friend or someone you knew, an acquaintance, someone in your workplace, someone maybe you haven't reached out to for a while, or someone maybe you don't really talk to or avoid in the workplace or in everyday life, your school, your, you know, whatever environments you find yourself in. Maybe this is an opportunity to just extend a friendly gesture or welcome or a cup of coffee, something to them and help them know that they're loved and that they're seen and that they're not alone. So that's my junk. Anyways, uh, Jesus kind of relates to that um, is that um, what reminded me of this is <clears throat> I'm, I've just experienced Jesus in a lot in the way that my children love me and respond to me. And it's very transforming, which I think it can be very transforming for other people who might be struggling or something, which is why I said that, because uh, it comes with no qualifiers. And what it reminds me of is what has become my favorite movie. Um, it's a movie called Peanut Butter Falcon. And it's a movie about um, a guy who has Down syndrome who escapes this place he's living to go live out his dream of becoming a professional wrestler. And he encounters uh, a character played by Shia LaBeouf. And they go on this kind of like, you know, uh, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn kind of journey um, to make this, bring this dream to life. But there's this one point where um, Zach, the uh, character who has Down syndrome, and Shia LaBeouf's character, I can't remember his name, when they uh, are sitting on a raft together. And Shia LaBeouf's character just starts crying and Zach just like comforts him. And he's like behind him 100% the entire time, even though Shia LaBeouf's character is like, kind of like a total jerk and selfish and has committed all these crimes and like has done a lot of bad stuff and has made mistakes. He, he doesn't see any of that, Zach. He, he just sees a friend and loves him. And I think um, that's really beautiful. That's how my kids have really been showing me their love. And um, I think that's how we can love others well. And really, if everyone did that, or even if just a few of us did that really well, that could radically change the world and our culture. So anyway, that's what's been on my heart and going on in my mind this past week. But in the overall life of the church, a lot has been going on as well. So I wanted to dive in a little bit this week um, about a letter that Pope Francis recently wrote. It's an apostolic letter on the liturgy, the Mass. And he uh, published this, um, as I'm recording, he published this just last week, June 29th, uh, 2022. So as you're hearing this, it'll be, I don't know, maybe 10 days ago. Um, so th there are a lot of different documents that the Pope can write. <clears throat> 
he can write what's called an encyclical, which is a very long document on a topic that he just wants to write about. Uh, and so Pope Francis did this when he wrote, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name of it. Um, Laudato Si. It was a, a document all about on our care for the common home, on uh, care for the environment and stewardship of the environment. Um, and so he wrote that just because he's passionate about that. Uh, a pope can also write an apostolic exhortation, which is something that is always a document that comes out of a synod, which is a gathering of the bishops. They'll meet for a long time, and uh, they usually have one of these every three to five years. They're preparing for one, a synod on synodality, a meeting about why they have meetings. So that'll be interesting about about that. There's probably more to it than my understanding, but it just seems like the most boring topic of all time. Anyways, um, but anytime they have that type of gathering, if any kind of church teaching or instruction is going to come from it, the Pope writes an apostolic exhortation to do that. Okay, so you have encyclicals, which are just topical for whatever reason, exhortations, which are based on a synod, and then you have things like this, which are uh, a, an apostolic letter. There are other types of documents as well, like constitutions that come out of different councils, but we even had one of those in, since the Second Vatican Council in the 60s, um, and different like, um, you know, motu proprios and letters like that. But this apostolic letter is a shorter document that is addressed primarily to the bishops, priests, and deacons and consecrated religious, but all of these also include that they're in, addressed to the lay faithful because we're meant to be informed about what's going on in the church and to, to know where the heart of the Pope is at, where the, the spirit is moving the church and things like that. So that's where this document came from. The document is called Desiderio Desiderio. Oh, I was going to pronounce it perfectly and I totally stuttered. Desiderio Desideravi, um, which comes from Luke chapter 22, verse 15. It's the Latin uh, Vulgate translation of Jesus saying, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. But it's particularly that phrase, I have earnestly desired, desiderio desideravi. That's where the, what this document is called. Uh, so it's on the liturgy. So this he wrote this as an extension of something he did last year. Okay, so last year on July 16th in 2021, uh, Pope Francis wrote a <clears throat> another apostolic letter called Tradiciones Custodes, which means Guardians of the Tradition. And he issued this letter, and it was called a motu proprio. Uh, motu proprio is something that like goes into effect. It's like a you know this is a a, a law of the church now, or a stance that like you has like canonical legality. I can't remember the translation of the term, but um, it means you got to do it. So it basically restricted the celebration of the Tridentine Mass, the traditional Latin Mass, in the Roman Rite, um, because. Pope Francis wants to move us more into what he considers the spirit of the Second Vatican Council um, and the Novus Ordo, the new order, the new mass um, that kind of came out of that, uh, which was really written out and kind of hashed out in a particular document of the Second Vatican Council called Sacrosanctum Concilium on the Sacred Liturgy. So, um, yeah, in the 60s, we had this, our last... Uh, most recent ecumenical council, a lot of important church teachings and documents came out of that. Four different constitutions came out of it. One was on the liturgy, on how we do the mass. And so now, you know, if you're much, much older, sorry, if you're an older pre-Vatican II Catholic, 
you remember mass all being said in Latin. You remember the priest facing away, the tabernacle being in the sanctuary. You know, there was a lot of different nuances to mass that were much different and much more traditional. Some people saw it as much more rigid or insider outsider kind of thing. You would go and hear mass. You wouldn't go and necessarily participate in mass. That wasn't part of the language. And only priests, uh, ordained ministers um, or those in seminary could be in any of the liturgical ministries, meaning like usher, uh, lector, altar server, etc. And they all had different different names, you know, acolyte, porter, things like that. Um, <clears throat> so once that changed, lay people, unordained people, were able to take on all these different roles in the church. There was a whole lot of emphasis on community participation, um, and we were able to kind of understand everything in the Mass and really dive into, you know, formation of what the Mass was about. However, there were a lot of loosey-goosey interpretations that started to happen, people trying to incorporate popular music, popular dance or culture into the Mass, which there, there really isn't a place for that. Um, or there is a place for, you know, modern, you know, artistic depictions, let's say, of music but in a tasteful, liturgically appropriate way, not in a way where you're just like grabbing a pop song from the top 40 and throwing it into mass. That's not appropriate at all. So there was a wide range of what you would call liturgical abuses happening. And so as a result, today we have this kind of schism between uh, trad Catholics, sometimes they call themselves rad trads or radical traditional Catholics, um, and Novus Ordo or, um, you know, those who are in the, the kind of modern um, new mass that's in the vernacular. And usually the people who are debating are not just the general Catholic who just goes to mass and has no idea that this is happening. It's more the very left-leaning, more progressive Catholics that are trying to incorpor incorporate like liturgical dance and all of these different, you know, artsy things into the mass and really try and improvise or change some of the rubrics of the mass and then those who are more um, rigid, radical, traditional Catholics. Now, there are good, well, I don't know if I would say there are good things in both, but there are <laughs> there are uh, good intentions, I think, on both sides to um, communicate the beauty of the Mass on one hand and or the ability for all of us to actively, fully, consciously participate in the Mass. However, um, it is clear from the documents of the Vatican Council, according to Pope Francis, that we're meant to be moving away from a more rigid, traditionalistic Latin style of Mass. Okay, So all of that background and context to basically tell you this is why he wrote this document. Um, he wrote that letter a year ago to restrict the um, reciting of the Latin Mass. So if priests are ordained after that letter, they have to um, get permission uh, to say the Latin Mass. If anyone is currently saying it, they need to reapply for that permission. Uh, their bishop has to be able to do that. Any religious order within their um, diocese needs to ask for their permission. And then any new cases beyond, I think it was, if you were existing, if you're already doing this, um, you had to ask your bishop's permission. And then Pope Francis basically said, there should be no creation of new communities, like new places or uh, orders or areas where this is being done where it's not already happening okay you really tried to instruct bishops to try and make sure if you want to offer this in your diocese try and have it in one particular place one particular time like not spread out like if this is something people want you can provide it but recognize this is not the norm okay so this has kind of persisted this kind of division between the church 
radical traditionalism, more progressive Catholicism. Most of us are just in the middle, going to Mass, seeking to understand it and participate. But here's this is what's going on on a wider sense. So Pope Francis, he wrote this letter, and this letter is very short. Um, it's maybe like 60-some paragraphs. Um, that may sound long, but if you've read an exhortation or an encyclical, you know they're like in the two to 300 paragraphs, and they're, they're very, very long. So um, Pope Francis basically in this letter, he starts out talking about the liturgy, what it is. And he basically calls the liturgy, the Mass, the quote-unquote today of salvation history. That basically like Christ said that he desires to celebrate the Passover with all of us. And so to experience the saving power and work of Jesus Christ and his mission that reaches its fulfillment on the cross and his resurrection, we experience that today at the Mass, in the liturgy. Like, that is where we experience it. Not just in private, not in private prayer, not in Scripture, in the Mass. That's where we experience that. That is where we are. All of salvation history, and including the moment of Jesus' death and resurrection, the Paschal mystery, that is where it is all made present to us. And so he continues in saying that is the place we encounter Christ. It says in paragraph 11, The Lord Jesus, who dies no more, who lives forever with the signs of his passion, continues to pardon us, to heal us, to save us with the power of the sacraments. And the chief of those sacraments being the Eucharist. So um, he then talks about, like, if this is the place where we encounter Jesus the most, the church is the sacrament of the body of Christ. And he says, basically, without the church, without this incorporation into the church, there is no possibility of living the fullness of worship of God. That's in paragraph 15. No possibility of living the fullness of the worship of God. And so the liturgy, the mass, has a theology about it. It, it speaks to us about God. That's what theology is. And so he starts talking about the Vatican Council and how much we owe to the council and the liturgical movements that preceded it and that came out of it to help us in our theological understanding of the mass and why it's so important. And he says in paragraph 16 that he wants the beauty of the Christian celebration and its necessary consequences for the life of the church not to be spoiled by a superficial and foreshortened understanding of its value, or worse yet, by being exploited in surface, service of some ideo ideological vision, no matter what the hue. And he goes into talking about how the liturgy, the mass, is the antidote for spiritual wor worldliness. He's talked about... Uh, the fact that th all throughout his papacy, he's been like talking about the the poison of spiritual worldliness and the, the difficulty of that. And basically saying like the mass connect, cannot get caught up in that. The mass is not a worldly thing where we bring all these ideologies to it, all these desires, and we try and make the mass conform to what we want. No, like the mass is the mass and the beauty of that celebration can't be spoiled by those things. It is above it. It's And he says in paragraph 20, participating in the Eucharistic sacrifice in the Mass is not our own achievement, as if because of it we could boast before God or before our brothers and sisters. Like, you know, look at the way we do Mass here. Or look at how, how I serve in this liturgical ministry. Or look how modern we are, how traditional we know. That's not what Mass is about. So he says that we need to rediscover every day the beauty of the truth of the Christian celebration. So he calls for a liturgical formation of the faithful, that we, we need to continue what the Second Vatican Council started and really make sure we understand the liturgy and what it is meant for. So we have to continually discover the beauty of the liturgy, um, that we can't get caught up in all of uh, in things that are, you know, superficial. Uh, we can't be careless. Uh, we can't just be, you know, functional. Um, 
He says in paragraph 23, let us be clear here. Every aspect of the celebration must be carefully tended to. Space, time, gestures, words, objects, vestments, song, music, etc. And every rubric must be observed. Such attention would be enough to prevent robbing from the assembly what is owed to it. Namely, the Paschal Mystery celebrated according to the ritual that the church sets down. But even if the quality and the proper action of the celebration were guaranteed, that would not be enough to make our participation full. So he's basically saying, like, do not do away with the rubrics. Do not do away with, you know, the, the things that have uh, made the Mass good. But it's not just about the rigidity of the rubrics. Like, as long as we're doing everything properly and checking all the boxes, then we have the holiest Mass possible. It's like, no, those things help guarantee the beauty of the Mass and the best way of communicating the fact that we are celebrating in the Paschal Mystery. However, that's not enough. We need to participate. And part of that is that we need to experience the beauty of the liturgy. Two of my favorite lines are in paragraph 25 and 26. Paragraph 25, he says, Beauty, just like the truth, always engenders wonder. And when those are referred to the mystery of God, they lead to adoration. They lead to us adoring God. Like Mass should lead us to adoring God. Like recognizing like the God of the universe is here, present, being manifest, becoming becoming bread and wine. Bread and wine are becoming his body and blood on the altar. The God of the universe coming to us in the form of spiritual nourishment. Like that is earth shattering. And the way that we surround that, all of the you know, environment of the liturgy, the way we, we participate and the way that liturgy is done should lead to that sense of wonder. Paragraph 26, wonder is an essential part of the liturgical act because it is the way that those who know they are engaged in the particularity of symbolic gestures look at things. So again, calls for this liturgical formation. Um, Let's see, what else did I want to point out about this? Uh, He talks about, you know, his his motu proprio. He talks about why he wrote that um, and basically saying, like, as he already expressed, it's his duty to affirm that the, the liturgical books promulgated by St. Paul VI and St. John Paul II, two po- former popes who were um, who came after or out of the Second Vatican Council, um, the, the ways of doing Mass, the missals that they um, approved, those are the ones who, that are in conformity with the Second Vatican Council, and they are the unique expression of the Roman Rite. Like, these are the things we should be using, Okay. Um, and then he talks about, um, the need to educate others in the liturgy, that every discipline of theology, each from its different perspective, must show, must show an intimate connection with the liturgy in light of which the unity of priestly formation is made clear and realized. There's no aspect of ecclesial life, church life that does not find its summit and source in the liturgy. Okay, that's paragraph 37. So basically, we try to do this at our parish, um, but trying to make sure everything has something to do with the Sunday experience, pointing to the liturgy or coming out of the liturgy, like making sure we're not just having like a social ministry so that we can make friends at church. It's like, well, what for what? Like recognizing we are a community of worship that should be evangelizing one another, evangelizing others, deepening our relationship with Jesus, recognizing he's our savior. And so friends and community are great, but they should only come out of that reality. You know, next weekend we'll have the gospel reading of Mary and Martha. You know, Martha who's busying herself with the hospitality of entertaining Jesus and Mary who's sitting at his feet listening to him. 
And he says to Martha when she complains, Mary has chosen the better part. You know, recognizing that it's not that the work is is bad, but the work should all be done in service of the end, which is Christ. Okay, so the ministry that we do, not necessarily good or bad, as long as it is pointing toward Christ. Pointing in this sense, the sense of this document, toward the liturgy. Uh, he goes on in f- paragraph 43, saying that the liturgy gives glory to God because it allows us here on earth to see God in the celebration of the mysteries and in seeing him to draw life from his Passover. Like the liturgy is how we, the primary way in which we encounter God through the Eucharist. That's why there's been such a uptick in the past century of uh, adoration of the Blessed Sacrament and spending time in that devotion to the Eucharist. And why, I'll talk about this toward the end, why we're beginning this three-year um national Eucharistic revival in our church in the United States. And so all of those things are just all relating to the fact that I think that the Holy Spirit is really desiring for us to have a renewed um, knowledge and formation of the beauty of the Mass. Um, Pope Francis talks a lot about the fact that like um, the Mass uses a lot of symbols and how we as a culture have kind of lost the art of symbols and the value of them. We kind of just... Um, this is me kind of interpolating here, but we've kind of just resigned ourselves to this kind of like practical criticism, like, okay, what does this actually mean? Or that's just some kind of old traditional thing. We don't really use symbols anymore. We're very just direct and communicative. Like, you know, there's not like this in a very individualistic society, there's no necessarily need for, for symbols because symbols help kind of unify people around a common ideal or a common grouping. Um, they see it as a representation of their values and the things that they stand for. But when you're in an individualistic world and it's all about me, 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 and my feelings and my interpretation, my identity, etc., which is very common in Western culture, symbols kind of lose their value, you know. Um, and you even you even get this with things like, um, you know, we just celebrated Pride Month and you have like the pride flag, which is a rainbow like that has a variety of different symbolical inter- sim- symbolic interpretations. And many people use the pride flag to mean different things and not necessarily knowing that each color had a specific representation when it was created and then it changed. Um, but still, some people might fly that flag, not realizing that they don't agree with every maybe symbol of it. Um, or sharing it in support of a particular person that they love who's part of that community, but not realizing that sharing it is approving of certain things that each color or each you know gesture or each group that uses it might also approve of. So the, uh, symbols just have gotten complicated. And so when we use them now in culture, they're not as clear and or we tend not to use them in general. So uh, he talks about that and how that can be a detriment to people helping uh, helping people understand the liturgy, but how that symbolic nature of the liturgy is so essential for us to understand, like, the history behind what we do, the biblical roots of what we do. I think, like, 90% of the text of the Mass is, is straight from the Bible or straight from ancient Jewish prayers that predate, you know, the, the printed Bible. Uh, and so um, that's something to be very, very uh, conscious of. So one of the longer sections of this, um, you know, the longest section uh, is him talking about um, a need for serious and vital liturgical formation, which I just talked about. And then the next longest comes right after that, and it's called Ars Celebrandi, or the art of celebrating. And um, basically, he says in paragraph 50, um, 
like the need for us to to conform to the rubrics recognize that the liturgy is an art but there are rules to art and there's a technique there are certain techniques and and um skills that an artist would learn. So this is in paragraph 50. He says, from these brief indications, it should be clear that the art of celebration is not something that can be improvised. Okay. So he is basically, you know, uh, his letter was kind of seen as like a cut toward maybe the traditional um, uh, Catholic community, but he's also kind of going after those who are being very loose with the liturgy and trying to incorporate all of these other things that are not proper to the liturgy. And he's saying like, this is not something that can be improvised. Like you have to conform to the rubrics to be able to share the beauty, but the rubrics have changed to share the beauty of the faith with a more modern generation, a more modern culture in a way that can help them understand it better, you know, in the vernacular, you know, with things, you know, um, different music and things like that, different ways we do the liturgy that are more participatory or communicative of the beauty of the liturgy. So um, he's, he's, I think he's poking at or, or condemning, not condemning, but like he's, he's addressing this to the two extremes and basically trying to show how like the Novus Order was meant to be this really beautiful incorporation of uh, the culture and cultural, like the de desire to evangelize the culture and modernize the liturgy in a way that is reverent and beautiful while retaining all of the beautiful rubrics and symbols and bringing them into, you know, the 20, 20th at the time, 21st century. So I, I'm adding, he's not using that language, but I'm kind of adding that just to help you understand. Um, so uh, I think this is really like the best summary of this is in paragraph 54. Um, and he basically is talking about different, um, models of, of approaching the mass. And uh, so he says, in visiting Christian communities, I have noticed that their way of living the liturgical celebration is conditioned, for better or unfortunately for worse, by the way in which their pastor presides in the assembly. We could say that there are different models of presiding. Here's a possible list of approaches which, even though opposed to each other, characterize a way of presiding that is certainly inadequate. So these are not good things. Rigid austerity or an exasperating creativity, a spiritualizing mysticism or a practical functionalism, a rushed briskness or an overemphasized slowness, a sloppy carelessness or an excessive finickiness, a superabundant friendliness or priestly impassibility. You've probably been to masses that are on all of the ends of those different spectrums. Um, and he continues, granted the wide range of these examples, I think that the inadequacy of these models of presiding have a common root, a heightened personalism of the celebrating style, which at times expresses a poorly concealed mania to be the center of attention. Often this becomes more evident when our celebrations are transmitted over the air or online, something not always opportune that needs and that needs further reflection. Be sure you understand me. These are not the most widespread behaviors, but still not infrequently assemblies suffer from being thus abused. So he addresses this particularly to the priests who who um, celebrate the mass. And, and it really is like the priest basically is the one who says we can do this or we can't. You know, everything has to be through his approval. I don't think there's priests out there, nor should there be, those who just kind of let some liturgical committee uh, run wild and change the rubrics of the mass. Like that would be in insanely irresponsible. Um, so all of this has to go through the pastor. So as as a result, 
the charisms of the pastor, what he's comfortable with, and, and usually things that center around him, things that he wants or doesn't want, end up in the liturgy. And what Pope Francis is saying here is like, if you're on any of these ends of these spectrums, these extremes, uh, recognize like this is not about you. And those things are probably about you, or they stem from something that is of you and not of the rubric, not of the beauty of the mass. Um, so he says instead in verse 57, the priest himself should be overpowered by his desire for communion that the Lord has touched each that the Lord has toward each person. Let me say that again. The priest himself should be overpowered by this desire for communion that the Lord has toward each person. It is as if he were placed in the middle between Jesus's burning heart of love and the heart of each of the faithful, which is the object of the Lord's love. To preside at Eucharist is to be plunged into the furnace of God's love. How beautiful is that? To preside at Eucharist is to be plunged into the furnace of God's love. Oh, I need to say it again. To preside at Eucharist is to be plunged into the furnace of God's love. That should be our experience at the Mass, of how loved we are, of how beautiful what God is doing and the love that he has for us is. How beautiful the fact that he died on the cross for us, made that sacrifice for us. And every time we come to Mass, it's not to be entertained, it's not to receive, it's to give, to offer in thanksgiving for that once and for all sacrifice that Jesus made for our forgiveness. And then we go to commemorate that, to remember and to participate in the new Passover meal that he instituted by receiving his very body, his very blood as our spiritual nourishment and food, just as the ancient Hebrews received the first Passover to escape from slavery in Egypt so that we can escape from the slavery of sin and seek to enter the promised land of heaven and to bring that message to everyone that we encounter. That is what the Mass is about. So he ends with a section on celebration. And he says in verse six, uh, paragraph 61, I intend that this unity be reestablished in the whole church of the Roman rite. Now, you may be wondering why he's saying Roman rite. There are other rites within Catholicism. I think there are 21 total rites in the Eastern churches, you know, so Egypt, Coptic Christians, uh, Melkite Christians from Greece, you know, uh, um, Lebanese Christians, the Maronite rite, the Syriac rite from the Middle East, like the Syro-Malabar rite from India, like all of them have different rubrics for how they say Mass that are more um, culturally related to their way of worship. So the Roman rite is the most popular rite, the most widespread, the most international rite. Um, all the other rites are far smaller. I think the largest is the Byzantine, and it's maybe um, of all of the Catholics you know, in the, in the world, um, I think it's probably 5% or less are Byzantine Catholics, if I'm not mistaken. All of the red, like 95% of Catholics in the world are Roman Rite Catholics, if I'm not mistaken, last time I checked. Um, and then 5% are Byzantine or some other Eastern Rite. Uh, or maybe it might be like closer to 10% if you include all the other rites. But anyways, um, this is particularly the, the liturgical problems and abuses he's seen uh, come out of the Roman Rite. Um, so he invites all of us in paragraph 63 to rediscover the meaning of the liturgical year and of the Lord's day to really help us uh, make sure we are understanding what the, wor the worship that we participate in, what the mass, the liturgy is about, why we have a liturgical calendar, what we're journeying through each year. And then he ends by saying, let us abandon our polemics to listen together to what the Spirit is saying to the church. And this has always been the thing that I've come back to when people critique the Second Vatican Council. I want to ask, like, 
Do you think that you have a greater sensitivity to what God is doing than the Holy Spirit himself, God himself, who promised to never stop guiding the church? Like, do you think that your, your critique, like, do you realize basically you're, you're implying that the Holy Spirit is doing something wrong or has abandoned the church, which means that Jesus lied? And that's a very dangerous area to be in. Okay, so he, Pope Francis continues and says, let us safeguard our communion. Let us continue to be astonished at the beauty of the liturgy. The Paschal mystery has been given to us. Let us allow ourselves to be embraced by the desire that the Lord continues to have to eat his Passover with us. All this under the gaze of Mary, mother of the church. So if you're curious, that is what the uh, letter is about. I'll have links to this letter as, as well as the letter um, Pope Francis wrote a year ago, Tradiciones Custodes, that this kind of is an uh, extension of uh, in the show notes for this episode. But I think this is such a timely letter. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the Tridentine Mass, the Latin Mass, is very beautiful. But I think in the communities that surround it, it, there's been this kind of hostility toward other style of Masses. Not by everyone, but I think in the way that it's um, present on me in media and people who have a social media presence of that community, it's become very um, divisive and as a result, very destructive and detracting from the beauty of the liturgy. I think um, if traditional Catholics believe that that is the highest form of beauty and liturgy, they should let that liturgy speak for itself and do it within the ways that Pope Francis is allowing it to be continue, continue to be done. And if there are other liturgical abuses out there on the other extreme, they need to listen as well, and they need to conform more to the rubrics that Pope Francis has said are approved and come out of the, the Second Vatican Council as the ones that we should be united around. Um, I think this is timely because, if, if you didn't know this, we're preparing in the United States, uh, we're actually already in the middle of it, um, for a three-year national Eucharistic revival in the United States. And this actually began just a few weeks ago on June 19th on the Feast of Corpus Christi, the Feast of the Body and Blood of Jesus Christ. And the plan for this in the United States is that this year, this first year, is a year of diocesan revival that this is going to invite people at, at the staff, bishops and their staff and priests in diocese uh, into the Lord's personal invitation and equip them to share his love with all of us faithful through different Eucharistic congresses and events. So it's basically a formation of bishops and priests to revive kind of diocesan structures and staffs to really have this Eucharistic focus. Then the following year, 2023 or June 2023 to June July 2024, is the second phase, which will um, kind of be promulgating a, a deeper Eucharistic devotion at each parish level, trying to strengthen our liturgical life through faithful celebration of the Mass. This is why this document is so important. Uh, Eucharistic adoration, missions, different resources, preaching, different movements of the Holy Spirit. And at the end of that second year, there will be what's called a National Eucharistic Congress, and it's, it'll be in Indianapolis, Indiana. They've already been planning it. Um, and more than 80,000 Catholics of all ages will gather um, to reconsecrate their hearts to the Eucharist and to learn more about the Eucharist. And a lot of stuff is oriented toward this. In fact, the Catholic Answers Conference, which is local this September, is focused on the Eucharist. Uh, and that's just, it's going to be a big thing that you're going to be hearing about and maybe experiencing. And then the third and final year of the Eucharistic revival, uh, starting July 2024 until Pentecost of 2025, will be about going out on mission. So we have a year of diocesan revival, a year of parish revival, and then a year of going out on mission. And that will be uh, a desire for the church to help 
kind of light that fire in the hearts of um, those of us who are faithful, and the Holy Spirit will guide us to go share our Eucharistic Lord, Jesus, with others who do not know him. And so that's what's kind of happening globally right now and nationally in the Catholic Church, and I thought it was appropriate because it was kind of tied together um, and really just kind of refocused that central ministry of love. As I was going back to as I was sharing in my Joy Junk and Jesus, how like I've just really been reflecting on like that unqualified, unconditional love that I've been receiving from my children and that I think is really just a game changer, a world and culture changer, and can really help redeem people who are lost or who are broken. And I think just I just see the Holy Spirit kind of moving a lot of that stuff together, at least in my own mind and the way that I see things and and the way I'm experiencing church. Um both locally and and how I see it happening globally. I just think there's there's incredible things in the works for the Catholic Church, but it's important that we're aware of what's happening. We're aware of our own role in it, our role to be emissaries of love, of Jesus's Eucharistic love to other people and invite them in to experience the beauty of the liturgy and making sure that we know enough about the Mass to be able to educate others, invite them into it, help them see how it is a beautiful wedding feast that we get to participate in every week where we walk down the aisle to receive the bridegroom who commits himself in total sacrificial love for us, who's giving us his heart to learn maybe about Eucharistic miracles, how actually the bread and wine, the body and blood of Jesus has actually turned into real flesh and blood at different times in salvation history, and it's been scientifically validated. Just incredible things that I think we have in store. And so uh, I just want to encourage you, read that document, or maybe um, maybe if that's not your, your thing, you start reading it and you're like, this is churchy language that I'm just not into. At least maybe take some time to reflect on your own approach to the Mass. How do you prepare? How do you participate? Do you treat it like a wedding ceremony or do you treat it like a to-do list on your calendar? Or do you even go? And when you do go, how are you participating? Are you thinking and critiquing about how you're receiving this, how good the music is, how good the homily is, whether it's a good pace, whether it ended early or went over whatever time you think it's supposed to be? Or are you there offering, offering your worries, your anxieties, offering your gifts, your talents, your money? Are you contributing to the needs of the community? Because that's what the collection is used for. It, yes, pays for things in the church, but then the church supports the charities in the local community. Uh, and so are you participating in all of that? Are you offering what you have? Are you offering your very self on the altar and saying, all right, Lord, this week transform me. Just as you transubstantiate that that bread and wine into your body and blood, change the substance of and the essence of my life to be more conformed to you. Um, laying myself down on that altar. And so what areas of your life need to be transformed, need to be more in conformity with Jesus Christ and his mission and his love for you? The teachings of the church, where are you really struggling to obey them? Where are you really struggling to obey? Um, Just think about those things and how they affect your worship, your approach to mass, your attitude, what you offer, what you get out of it, um, or at least how how you have that perspective and how you experience it as beautiful. Like, do you know enough about the Mass to see how beautiful it is? And if not, how are you going to learn? So anyways, that was longer than I intended to talk, but um, a lot going on, a lot of important stuff to know. So I hope you'll do some reading. If you have questions, please send them my way. I can happily do a follow-up episode if this was very church languagey and confusing, um, if there are certain things that need to be broken down more. But I think knowing the context that I gave you, going and reading that document, some of those things will kind of come out and you'll start to notice um, kind of what Pope Francis is getting at. 
And if you thought I missed anything, feel free to shoot that my way as well. I was just trying to do a little summary here for you to compel you to go either read the document and or put this document into action in your own life and see how the Holy Spirit can continue to use you. That's all I have for you this week. Uh, pray for me as I pray for you. And until next time, I will see you in the Eucharist. God bless. Thank you.